I am Gautam Kumra, Chairman of McKinsey Asia, and you are listening to the Future of Asia podcast series. The Asian century has begun. The region is now the world's largest economy. As Asia's economies evolve further, the region has the potential to fuel and shape the next normal. In each episode, we are going to feature conversations with leaders from across the region to discuss what Asia's rise means for businesses across the globe. Join us. Is Asia on the cusp of a new era? A new McKinsey Global Institute report argues that not only will Asia be the furnace in which a new era is forged, it may also experience heightened versions of global geopolitical, demographic, and resource challenges. In this episode of the Future of Asia podcast, we are joined by Chris Bradley, Senior Partner and Director of the McKinsey Global Institute, and Jungmin Sung, Partner at the McKinsey Global Institute. Both are co-authors of the MGI report on Asia on the cusp of a new era. It's great to have you both with us today, Chris and Jungmin. To start off, I was wondering if you could perhaps answer why you believe that Asia is on the cusp of a new era and what forces are changing to result in this new era. Thanks, Angela. It's really great to be here. We're excited about talking to you about this report because we really do believe Asia is on the cusp of a new era. It's an incredibly exciting time to live in Asia um, and we're at a point of inflection of so many forces. So if we look around the world at the moment, it feels awfully strange, doesn't it? We've got pandemics, we've got wars, we've got these massive technological breakthroughs happening. We've got a really different feeling geopolitical environment. And you could think to yourself, hey, is this just an incredibly unusual time in history? Are we just in the middle of a storm? What we did was step back and realize, you know what, we're not alone. Every generation or so, there's a time like this. For example, if I think around the time I was just in finishing high school, the Berlin Wall fell down, the World Wide Web was invented, and that the whole new era of globalization and digitization that we've all grown up in came into being. So I kind of left school and, and came into adulthood in a completely new world. And maybe around the time I was born or a little bit before, we had an oil crisis, we had the end of the Vietnam War, we had the end of the gold standard, we had the invention of the integrated circuit. So much happening at that point in time. And again, that was a gave way to a period of time that was radically different around uh, this, the 70s and the 80s with oil crises and inflation. So, and if I go back to when my dad was born around the war, the end of the Second World War, again, that that was a time of massive disruption that paved the way to a new era. So we just think we're in one of those times where we're um, kind of opening a door or we're on the threshold to new era. And and that's perhaps why it's not only exciting, but also confusing, because our observation is that these points in time, the rules of the world actually kind of fundamentally change. And because of that, so do our rule box also have to change. And even though the last 30 years, so since about 1990, has been a time of radical change. I would argue it's been a set of radical change, a radical change that's been remarkably consistent in the underlying rules and direction of travel. For example, Moore's Law has been an incredibly consistent force. Globalization has been an incredibly consistent force. The entry of hundreds of millions of new consumers and new producers into the world economy, both not only in China and India, but also in Eastern Europe, has been a consistent force. It's just the outcomes of those forces has been 
kind of surprising, but the forces themselves haven't. And we've all lived, we've all become leaders in a period of time which had that consistent set of rules. And guess what? Now those rules are changing. So, and in this report, which we'll, we'll go through in a bit more detail, we've laid out kind of, you know, if there was a, a rule book of the world, it would have five chapters. And we kind of go through, well, what are those changes? And, and you know, chapter one would be around the world order and geopolitics. Chapter two would be around what are the fundamental technology platforms and technology trajectories of the world. Chapter three would be about maybe the slowest, but possibly the most powerful force of all, which is demographics, which is really going to shape our reality. Chapter four would go down to the fundamentals of how we eat and move and make stuff. It would go down to energy and materials. And then chapter five would be around capital, both physical and financial capital, which really does actually make the world go around. And so today we're going to try and kind of take you through a guided tour of what we think those new rules might look like and perhaps what some of the implications would be. Thank you, Chris, for setting that context. Jungmin, did you have anything you wanted to add? Chris talked about a, a big euro shift and taking an Asian perspective. You know, there is also another big shift, right, which is the other position of the other Asia in the new era versus previous era. So when we entered the previous era, Asia used to be a minority of the world, and that means a taker of the global rules set by others. And now Asia is the new majority of the world. You know, Asia accounts for 57% of global GDP growth, 64% of uh, patent generation, and also more than half of global middle-class households, right? So that means Asia now has the opportunity to become a shaper of the new rules for the world. But then Asia is extremely large and diverse. And the region is about five times the size of Europe. We speak more than 2,000 languages here. And Singapore's per capita GDP is 60 times that of Nepal. So what is Asia? And we believe that there's uh, no single Asia, but at least you know five different Asias, advanced Asia, China, India, emerging Asia, and frontier Asia. Each Asia is as large as a continent, and each will experience the new era differently, but will also have an opportunity to shape it. And what is interesting is the, uh, the strong complementarity across different Asias, right? So for example, advanced Asia and China have strong capital and technology foundation, but growth is slowing and the population is aging. On the other hand, India and emerging Asia offer fast growth, younger demographics, and various you know, technology deployment opportunities. And as a result, when looking at the, the share of so-called intra-regional trade, which essentially represents the, the proportion of trade occurring within a, a specific region, Asia ranks among the highest globally, accounting for about 60% of total trade. In case of Europe, the figure is around 70%. For many other regions, the range varies from 20 to 40%. Thank you both for elaborating. Perhaps we can move on to what Chris mentioned earlier about the five different chapters of this new era. The report discusses five different dimensions of this shift to the new era. Perhaps you could walk us through them and feel free to elaborate on the implications of these shifts for the five different Asias. So let me start from the world order chapter. So in the previous era, Asia benefited a lot from globalization and became a global trade hub by leveraging the complementarity across Asia that we just discussed. But in a new era, the world is becoming multipolar and may face an increased contention. So the question is, how can Asia continue its pragmatic cooperation model and balance security and economic agendas? 
We examined top 80 trade corridors and found out that uh, 49 of them involve Asia. Among the top 20 fastest growing corridors, 18 are linked to Asia. And within the top 20 largest trade routes, 13 are associated with Asia. So Asia really became the global trade hub. At the same time, Asia's trade network is highly interdependent, and this interdependence is prominent in some of the other strategic value chains. Take electronics as an example. You know, all top 40 chips-related corridors involve Asia, and China is the largest importer of chips and also is the largest exporter of downstream products, accounting for 70 to 80% of global exports of telephones or laptops. So some countries are asking questions so whether they are too dependent on a specific group of economies and therefore in this new era, navigating trade growth while managing security and resilience agendas will be crucial. So Zhongmin, I think you're exactly right. One stat from our research that's really stuck with me is that the amount of travel, uh, the amount of trade that happens within the region of Asia is almost as high as the amount of trade that happens within the EU. And the EU has this huge political machinery and this legal machinery to make that work. Asia doesn't have anything except just good old-fashioned pragmatism. So the question is, as the world does go multipolar, you know, can that pragmatic model survive? And in fact, a lot of the research Zhongmin does looks at the future scenarios of trade and our view is, frankly, you can't undo world trade. The world is globalized. So we're going to have to learn to live in a new global reality, but accepting that we have, as we say, ties that bind. And in terms of technology, in the previous era, the focus was predominantly on hardware innovation and digital penetration. And Asian economies successfully became a strong manufacturing hub for the world. However, new era, the focus is shifting towards software solutions and transversal technologies. So the big question is whether Asia can transition from being a tech manufacturer to a tech creator. We analyzed 3,000 top tech-related companies and found out that Asia is punching above its weight in four key manufacturing areas, consumer electronics, industrial electronics, electric vehicles, and semiconductors. And in these sectors, you know, Asian companies had about you know, 40 to 70% of global uh, revenue shares. But in the areas with high technology barriers, such as software, biopharma, and, and medical technology, Asia still lags behind, right, holding only a single-digit revenue share. And in fact, some Asian economies still heavily depend on importing core knowledge. For example, China's import of intellectual property was three times greater than its export of IP. For India, the ratio was nine times. So in a new era, right, so facing geopolitical uncertainty, the crucial question is how Asia can continue to move up the other innovation curve. And that's technology chapter. So Zhongmin, with things like electronics so much at the heart of Asian trade, it's no surprise really that a lot of the tension we're having around technology is around some of these, these electronic supply chains. And what we're seeing is kind of the battle for battery supremacy and now increasingly tensions around semiconductors. So we think that's really going to, these tech platforms are not just incidental to these geopolitical issues. They're right at the center of it. In terms of demography, in the previous era, Asia enjoyed a huge demographic dividend. In a new era, Asia will experience a big labor market mismatch because 
working age population is shrinking where productivity is high, and it is increasing where productivity is low. So the quick question for a new era is how to drive a productivity revolution across Asia and solve this mismatch. And in fact, parts of Asia are aging rapidly. If you look at advanced Asia and China, the pace of aging is uh, twice as fast as the, uh, the Western economies. And the good news is that the, uh, the other parts of Asia, you know, such as uh, India, Indonesia, and Vietnam still have a younger, much younger population. However, there is a big productivity gap between old and young Asia. Uh, for example, India's productivity is only one-eighth of uh, that in, in advanced Asia. So new era, how do we address this challenge, right? So one solution is to move people to where jobs are. However, the cross-border migration in Asia has been very limited. Um, the stock of migrants as a percentage of the, the total population in China, Korea, and Japan is somewhere between 0.1% and 3%. Therefore, a more workable solution is to move jobs to where people are. And in order to achieve this, Asia will need a productivity revolution, including reskilling and upskilling and automation across all Asia. So, Zhongmin, I think this point on demographics and the complementarity is so important. In the last 30 years, more than half of the growth in working age population came from Asia. And that change in working age population was kind of um, leveraged or was magnified by urbanization because the urban population tripled in China and it doubled in India. So we had this massive surge of workers entering the industrial economy more than we've ever seen in the history of humanity. And it will be the biggest ever, by the way. It will never happen again. Because as we know from the UN projections, the world is at what we call peak child. There'll never be more children in the world than there are today. But this movement, so even though the, the growth in the working age population might be slowing, the movement of people into cities hasn't, isn't finished. So in particular, we zoom in on India, which is so critical to the future of Asia. And one of the aces they hold up their sleeve is that 46% of Indian workers are still on farms. Now, that number, by the way, in China is just over 20%. But in the USA, it's only 2%. So it just shows how much further we have to go. So this movement, this continued migration into urbanization is one of the great offsets we have for demographics. And it's one of the reasons why really Asia has no choice but to for India and some of those other larger economies to become a critical part of our manufacturing chains. I think this is going to be just a phenomenal shift in how the world works, and I'm, I'm very excited about it. Let me move on to something that's just gone up everyone's agenda big time for two reasons, and this is resource and energy systems. And obviously, reason number one is carbon. We need to find a way to, to completely reshape the world's energy systems. And, you know, energy is at the heart of everything. It's almost become so automatic we don't think about it but we're also reminded of energy because of some one of the repeating issues we've talked about on this podcast which is geopolitics suddenly we've realized that actually energy security really matters and also we're starting in some economies to hit real affordability constraints so i think energy is a bit like water you don't think about it till you're thirsty but we're thinking about it a lot now and we've got to jointly solve the problem of getting clean safe reliable, affordable energy to people, but also doing so in a way that does not emit carbon. So Asia, in this respect, matters disproportionately, but it also is disproportionately challenged. So it matters disproportionately because this is where the emissions are. 97% of emissions growth in the last 30 years was from Asia. The vast bulk of industrial energy use is in Asia, and that's the hardest 
to decarbonise. And already the majority of energy use is in Asia. But here's where the challenge gets interesting. We're not finished yet because a typical Asian has only one third of the energy use than someone in an OECD economy. So to put that into practice, so in China, they use a bit over 100 gigajoules of energy per person per year. To put that into perspective, that's about what two Toyota Corollas would use in petrol. But in India, it's more like 25 or 30. And that compares to kind of in the developed world, over 200, up to 300. So even the the most industrialized parts of Asia still aren't on OECD standards of energy usage. So what we've got to work out is how do we grow these energy systems while decarbonizing them? Because the principal technologies we have for decarbonizing energy, uh, which is renewable electricity, works in a place where you can tack it onto an existing baseload system. But we do not know how to grow or double or triple an energy system only using renewables without having the backup of a thermal system. And that explains why, you know, there's 100 or more, 125, I think, coal-fired power plants being built in Asia as we speak now. And we don't look at that judgmentally or critically. I think that's just actually where the technology's at. So this is a massive challenge. And along with the challenge of decarbonizing industry, which disproportionately is borne by Asia, means that the pace of energy transition really is going to be set in Asia. Now, there's great bright lights of hope, right? For example, electrification of vehicles. China is by far leading the world in the electrification of, of, of vehicles. And in many respects, some of these growing energy systems, for example, even in China, they still need to add 1.5 more Europe's to their electricity supply by 2050. And so they will be able to take advantage of new technologies as we develop them. So there's lots of reasons to be excited and to be optimistic, but we've also got to face into the fact that with the technology we have now, this is uh, Asia is going to be is going to be setting the pace. Yeah, and indeed, you know, if we take a forward-looking view, Asia will account for majority of the uh, the energy consumption growth of the world, right? Because of continuous urbanization and the rise of middle class and rapid industrialization happening in the region. So therefore, Asia is still under-energized and will need a lot more energy. But also at the same time. There'll be exciting innovation opportunities because of this challenge. For example, you know, green hydrogen or carbon capture technology, climate analytics, smart grid and building spongy cities. You know, those are all opportunities for the players in Asia. So let me move on to the final bit, which is capitalization. Now, it might be funny that we talk about something so specific as capital, but actually somewhere between 60 to 80 percent of productivity growth, which is really what drives development, is explained by capital deepening. So just to make that very practical, it just means every worker has more capital. So for example, both China and India started in the mid-90s with about $10,000 of capital per worker. By the way, just to put that in perspective, the typical American worker has nearly $300,000 of capital. So you should see how small that was. And India kind of managed to increase by three or four times to 30 or 40,000 the amount of capital per worker. And China managed to increase by eight or nine times to kind of 80 to 90,000 capital per worker. And that's really what underpinned the incredible surge in income and wealth and development. So that capital comes in many forms. It's like the tools and machines that people use, but it's also the infrastructure and cities that people live in. And this is really what makes productivity happen. And so now that journey, if you can kind of look into some of those numbers I just gave, is clearly not over because Japan still has four times more capital per worker than China does and 11 times more than India. So the journey of kind of bringing capital to Asia and so we can all enjoy 
the incredibly safe and prosperous lives is not finished. And so, spoiler alert, that's going to take a lot of money. And even just in the last decade, Asia mobilized 91 trillion of capital. We think the next decade, it needs another 137 trillion. So this is by far the largest pool of capital growth in the world. And the point about this new era isn't that we need capital, it's that we've got to do it in an environment where the rules of the capital market seem to have kind of changed and the the hope of almost infinite pools of cheap money without inflation and ever-expanding balance sheets is really being called into question. You know, if we really are higher for longer and if the balance sheet stresses that we've built up over the last kind of 50 years really start to show, then maybe we've got to think of new ways of, of, of how we're going to go about mobilizing that capital. Um, furthermore, there's an extra challenge in Asia is that the return on capital actually is kind of lower. It's funny, you'd expect in a high growth place with so much opportunity, the return on capital will be high. But at least for corporations in Asia, the return on invested capital is like 6 or 7% which is, you know, below the cost of capital, but, you know, that compares to like 11% or more in the US. So every marginal dollar of, of capital going to the US kind of makes more money. So Asia is going to have to work out how to solve kind of a triple challenge, how to mobilize ever more capital, how to do that on top of a balance sheet that's already stretched, and how to do that in a set of new capital market realities facing into and how we do that with improved return on, on capital. So this surge of capital that we had into Asia did something really magic. It, it meant that we had for about a 40 or 40 year period, a time in the history of planet Earth where 1 billion or more people were experiencing kind of what we call top gear growth, which is growth at more than 7.5%. And for those of you who've lived in economies growing at that speed, so maybe, you know, Korea in the 70s and the 80s or Japan in the 60s or China in the uh, early 2000s, this is a fast rate of growth. The amount of building, the amount of disruption, the amount of radical change it takes to be in top gear growth is really, really phenomenal. The issue now, though, is we don't have any large groups of population in top gear growth. India is doing well to kind of get above 5% growth, but has never been able to get in that kind of top gear above 7.5%. So we're in a period now coming out of COVID where we've kind of, a lot of people have slipped out of top gear growth and the fundamental growth prospects, particularly for China, do appear lower. And while there's some confidence and optimism about what can be achieved in India, India has never achieved top gear growth either. So that's why this capital point, it's not theoretical. If we really want to see this radical improvement in living standards and we want to see more and more of the world enjoy safe and prosperous lives, we're going to have to mobilize an awful amount of capital. Yeah, so Chris talked about the $137 trillion figure. That's the fixed asset investment to be deployed in Asia over the coming decade. And to put that in the context, right? So that's actually larger than the sum of the US and Europe. But then good news is that um, Asia is a high savings economy, right? So therefore, the next step for the region will be about creating more dynamic and efficient financial systems to improve the capital allocation and increase the, the return. Thank you, Chris and Jungmin, for sharing your thoughts on energy and capitalization. Evidently, many shifts are taking place and many opportunities are coming out of Asia. How can companies prepare for this new era? And what do these shifts mean for their businesses and for different industries across the region? Yeah, so when we put all this together, it's really quite an arresting picture of change. And I, I hope what we've convinced you of is that this really is a different time and we really are 
changing some of the fundamental rules of how we work and therefore we really do need to revisit in a, in a very deep way what some of the playbooks that our governments and our companies are, are operating via. And so just because the time's confusing or uncertain, it doesn't mean it can be complacent. In fact, this is the time we think in which, you know, it's periods of inflection when the world is really shaped. So to get our head around this, we collaborated with the Asia Business Council, which is a group of, you know, very senior business leaders in Asia. And we just asked them, hey, if these are the things happening in the world, what does it mean for your companies? And what was really interesting is fully three quarters of them said, in our view, that is that this cusp of a new era means we need to quite fundamentally reshape our corporate strategy and our business model. So that's a pretty, you know, you're really in the minority if you think this is tactical. These group of very senior leaders from across the whole of Asia see it as anything but tactical. They see it as a deeply strategic shift. But the other cool thing, though, is that when we ask them, well, how do you feel about this world? 82% of them feel very optimistic about the future. There's this kind of, and I think that's a great Asian spirit in some ways. It's this kind of relentless optimism, seeing opportunity, seeing all the connections, but equally being willing to do what it takes to make that optimism a reality and to make those those transformational changes. So the clients we work with now are really stepping back and saying, okay, you know, let's do a key assumptions check on our strategy. What are the things that we're kind of assuming are true about the world in our strategy about globalization or around technology or around capital? And how many of those do we think are still right? And to the extent that we have to refresh our assumptions of the world, how might that express itself in a different set of choices? And I tell you, some boards are the confusion uh, puts them on the back foot and they kind of want to wait and see what happens. But I think the companies that get ahead and that win will be the ones that kind of move to a more shaping posture and really grab that ball of change and run with it. And as companies step back and think about big pictures, as Chris mentioned, they can also consider two categories of actions, right? So one is to prepare for the next year for their own organization. So for example, to deal with uh, geopolitical uncertainty, companies can initiate uh, no regret moves, right? Such as diversifying the supply chain or substituting highly concentrated and hard to replace materials to enhance the resilience of their supply chain. And and as they undertake these measures, identifying leading indicators of change will also be helpful. So for instance, shift in greenfield FDI, you know, global greenfield FDI may serve as a precursor to reconfiguration in global manufacturing footprints. Another action is to shape the next era together with others and steer towards a better outcome, which is also the point that Chris mentioned that board is interested in. Companies can do this by engaging with uh, other stakeholders, such as industry associations or public institutions, right? So for example, in the tech domain, turning a quantity advantage of STEM talents in Asia into a quality advantage will require improving the the entire education and innovation ecosystem. On demographics, upskilling and reskilling the workforce cannot be done by a single company. Thank you both for letting us know what companies can do to prepare for this new era. Before we close the episode, I was wondering if there were any final thoughts you wanted to share. Summary message is very simple, which is the world's on the cusp of a new era. There's a new set of rules coming. We need new playbooks. Moreover, Asia is at the center of these changes. Asia is the new majority and is the central actor in bringing this new era into being. 
So it's going to be an exciting time and it's going to be an even more exciting time to be in Asia. Yeah, my closing thought will be to think about year in addition to year. Um, you know, many business leaders are busy with dealing with quarterly and yearly targets, right? But then if you believe in the, uh, the arrival of a new era where the rules and assumptions will change, then it will be extremely helpful to take a step back and think about a big picture and uh, what these changes will mean to my own business. Thank you both so much for joining us on the Future of Asia podcast and for elaborating on the findings of MGI's Asia on the Cusp of a New Era report. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.